We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. I feel like everyone's kind of stuck in their, you know, comfort zone. I always say, like, Ashkenazi food is paprika and garlic powder, and the Sephardi palate is, like, cinnamon and allspice, you know? You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Connie Applebaum is the author of a really cool new book, Totally Kosher, and the force behind Busy in Brooklyn, a go-to resource for kosher recipes and thoughts on modern Jewish living. Now, I wanted to have Hani into the studio to talk about the many nuances of modern kosher cooking, but also discuss some questions of mine about her modern Orthodox life. Hani was super game to talk about so many topics, including how these recipes are not only for the religious set, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hani Applebaum. Hani Applebaum, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I love your book. Thank you. No, so for exciting. Real, for real. I'm Jewish. I've talked about that on the show, but honestly, I'm, and I'm not kosher. It is a book for everyone. It is not just a kosher cookbook. There are so many big ideas in here. And I want to unpack a lot of those ideas. But to start, for our audience, you might not know what kosher means. How do you describe what the kosher diet, lifestyle, ethic is? So kosher food, kosher actually means fit in Hebrew. And it's food that's fit for consumption by, you know, an observant Jew. Um, There is varying degrees and levels of, you know, kosher observance at the the beer basics everybody knows. We don't eat pork, we don't eat shellfish, and we don't mix milk and meat together. Got it. Um, You know, going in-depth, we can talk for hours about it because there's so many different rules. There's kosher certification on, you know, uh, on products, on restaurants. Um, You know, there's certain vegetables that we check for bugs and lots of different— Broccoli's bad. (laughs) Broccoli's bad. Cauliflower gets a lot of bad rap on my Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of intricacies in terms of, you know, kosher, depending on the level of observance that you keep. Um, But really, I just really— I like to make kosher very approachable to anybody. Um, and like you said, like, it, it's a book that happens to be kosher, but it's just good food. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it's cooking with some restraint in a, in a way. And I think that's important to note. Like, that's challenging for some folks, but you have to um, really focus on these rules and you make it so your, your, your level of creativity is like upped. I think if you're given like all rules, it would be probably a little different. Very but. true. Yeah, I agree with that. Now I want to know what is the biggest challenge to, to write a recipe that fits in the kosher lifestyle? I would say it's probably, you know, not being able to mix the milk and meat together. Right. So butter becomes the biggest challenge because butter is so much flavor and yep. it adds so much to a dish and you know, you you can't uh, baste the steak with butter, mm-hmm. and I'm not about to use margarine. That's very you know old school, and mm-hmm. I and I really want to 
change that misconception about kosher food that it's all about margarine because people are really not using it these days. Anymore. Are you anti-margarine? Totally anti-margarine. I love this, like anti-margarine. <laughs> the anti. I actually went to a kosher culinary school. Yeah. So because it's kosher, it was either there's a meat kitchen or a dairy kitchen because there was only one space, right? They didn't have room for both. So everything that we learned in the dairy kitchen, we had to use margarine for. So we had these huge blocks of margarine, yeah. and like ever since then. I cannot look at margarine again. Like, cannot. So I'm the anti-margarine. You're the anti-margarine, and, and we don't really talk about margarine that much. But um, <laughs> but you got other ways to bring out flavor, right? And, and and you don't need butter. Yeah. I mean, definitely coconut oil is something that yeah. I lean towards a lot because, you know, it's solid at room temperature, and it's great substitute for uh, for butter. Um, something that a lot of people don't know about coconut oil is that refined coconut oil doesn't have a coconut flavor. Yep. So— a lot of people just don't like to use it because it's very coconutty. But yeah, they think it's gonna be tropical, but it ultimately the refined stuff doesn't even right. Do that. No, no coconut flavors. So. I love that. Now, you've written other cookbooks and you've written with more religious publishers, but you decided to do this book with Clarkson Potter. Shout out my publisher as well. Yes. Um, wh- like why? You know, I really like I was saying before, there there are a lot of misconceptions and stereotypes about kosher food, and I really want to bring kosher to the mainstream world. And, you know, uh, with a religious publisher, it, you know, my reach is more limited, and I wanted to get out there and reach a larger demographic and really uh, get kosher in, in the limelight because it deserves mm-hmm. to be. And kosher, is, it's, it's not all brown anymore. <laughs> and if you look at my book, you know, all the you know, all the food yeah. is so colorful, and that's really what got me into food is color and making it beautiful and the the, the artistic part of, of food. Exactly. So, and you take your own photos. I do. That Which is impressive because, man, Clarkson Potter, they aren't letting any bad photos show up in cookbooks. Like, it's it's really a credit to you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I love food photography. Yeah, you know, it's, you have a real talent. Now, let's talk about Ashkenazi cuisine okay. and Mizrahi cuisine or Arab cuisine or Sephardic, whatever you want to call it. Okay. I think the tendency is to assume kosher food is Ashkenazi, right? But that's not the, that really the case, right? Uh, yeah, not at all. I mean, obviously for me, you know, being a cookbook author, a lot of the foods that I, recipes I develop are inspired by dishes that I grew up in, with, you know, and I grew up in an Ashkenazi home, like mm-hmm. super Hungarian, very sweet dishes. Uh, and over time, just really refine my palate and prefer like savory over sweet but in my mother's kitchen is always like if something's lacking flavor she's just pouring more sugar and i'm like ma sugar is (laughs) a sweetener not a seasoning (laughs) but um so yeah but then i married into a Sephardi family Mm -hmm. and uh really learned a whole new flavor profile that i had not you know grown up with so i really love like kind of fusing the two together and like bringing the Ashkenazi palate to the the, the Sephardi dishes and and the Sephardi palate to the Ashkenazi Mm -hmm. dishes because I feel like everyone's kind of stuck in their, you know, comfort zone. I always say, like, Ashkenazi food is paprika and garlic powder, and the Sephardi palate is, like, cinnamon and allspice, you know? Great. Well-articulated. Nice. I like that. I like that splitting of the difference there. Yeah. Yeah. You you go over ingredients that you think really up a kosher dish, and and you you name 10 of them. We won't go through 10, but give a couple of those that you uh, feature prominently in the book. I mean, I think that, like we were speaking before, like, that biggest obstacle is, uh, you know, how— 
the the waiting between milk and meat and not being able to mix it. So like relying on umami rich uh, ingredients like soy sauce and miso really can help amp up a dish that needs a little bit of that meaty flavor, but like you can't use beef broth in there, you know? So being able to learn a little bit about those ingredients that can help, you know, for a meaty dish or, you know, uh, tahini, which is really great uh, way to emulsify dishes without using butter. It's it's great as a thickener for soups and, and things like that. So, you know, I think that uh, understanding how these ingredients can help you in the kosher kitchen overcome that obstacle is is really important. I mean, I just got back from Israel. I was there for a couple of weeks on vacation. The Lina was, wow, like it's Ugh. pretty great there. Yeah. it's. I mean, the stuff here is not as good. Well, you know, I, I'm an Ahar Bracha purist. <laughs> and if you speak to any Israeli chef, they all say Ahar Bracha is the best. They bring it in from Israel now. Yeah. You can get it. Very easily. So um, that's my tchina of choice. I was at a grocery store in Beersheba with some relatives, and I I bought a a couple bottles of their brand, and I don't remember what it was, and I don't know that. But, yeah, I think good tahini transforms everything. Um, What's a a dish that you use tahini in that's pretty— Pretty, What's pretty a dish that I don't use tahini? Truths, truths, <laughs> truths. I literally, I I love sesame, sesame seeds, yeah. uh, sesame oil, all sesame products. Um, but I just love sesame on it, like tahini on its own. But like really, like one of the best tricks to making the fluffiest mousse-like tahini is first of all, like making it in your food processor, pouring yeah. ice water in there, yeah. and letting it blend for like a good five minutes, and it's like. Moose. That's the one that you. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah, so we'll get to some more recipes. I feel like there's, there's. We'll go through the, your falafel technique. There's a little teaser. It's, uh-huh. it's pretty special. Thank you. Um, I want to hear about Shabbat. I think Shabbat is a is a time when uh, it's very, very specific to Jewish culture, and and it's it's special. And I think with food and also just with family, describe how a Shabbat meal kind of unfolds and what Shabbat is. Well, Shabbat for me is like all about unplugging and especially like being a blogger and being on social media all the time and always on my phone, like just completely disconnecting from technology, uh, you know, for that period of time and just like connecting to my kids. I'm really giving them the attention they deserve Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, we're pulled in a a bunch of different directions during the week. And if I didn't have Shabbat, I don't know what I would do. Like it's just so special to all of us. Um, one of the things that I love is bringing in the sh- in Shabbat lighting uh, the sh- Shabbat candles, and there's actually a picture of me and my daughters in my book lighting. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a really special moment for me that I really connect with. That I feel like I, you know, think about uh, the past week and uh, think about the week ahead, and you know, pray for health of my children and, and and people that needed it. It's a really special moment, and then that ushers in this beautiful family time. Yes. Um, and I just like love playing around in the kitchen. I never make the same Shabbat menu. Always different things and you're planning it though like by Wednesday right not really like I think you know I always like joke like in Thanksgiving you know when people are making Thanksgiving they're like how are you planning your Thanksgiving menu you're starting on Monday you're shopping on Tuesday and I feel like we have Thanksgiving every weekend when we make Shabbat like it's a full like three to four course dinner you know Um, but I'm so used to it like I'm doing it for so many years that like I have it in my back pocket I literally shop and cook and do everything on Friday. But, but, like, I'm so quick in the kitchen. We're recording on a Thursday afternoon. We've got about 24 hours till the start of Shabbat. What do you, what do you got planned for well, this? Well, I didn't plan it. I just, like, literally go to the supermarket and I <laughs> plan on the fly. I love it. Okay, you, li- you, live by your, you live your truth there. Totally, totally. I love Shabbat. Even for non-observant Jews or even non-Jews, it's a time that you can use to unplug, to reflect. Yeah. Uh, Dina Sussman's new book, Shabbat, is going to be amazing. It's out in the fall. I've seen, I've seen early 
PDF of it. It's amazing. Yes. Um, I can't wait to have her on. Hani, my heart swells because you're diamond crystal kosher salt hive. Uh, <laughs> I love that stuff. Like, I feel like, you know what? You have to find your salt that you're comfortable with. You have to. And, and just always use that because then you just, you learn how it seasons food and it's just... That's my that's my love. How is kosher salt like the only food that's called kosher that we because have in it's, our? It's all salt is actually kosher unless Truth. it's like merlot salt, it's, like that's been flavored. But they use they call it kosher salt because they use that in the koshering process. Got it. Got yeah, it. to remove the blood when in the slaughtering. It's part process. of the removal of blood, which is yeah. part of the the kosher um, ethic. And um, back to like diamond crystal. There's always Mortons, but we've talked to many people on the show. Claire Sapp is being one of them. Diamond crystal is a superior salt, right? Yes, totally. Love has that. my heart. Um, I love that. So as I mentioned, I was just returned from Israel. I was in Tel Aviv, Haifa, Akko, Beersheba. I was like all over. Do you get to go there at all? Yeah, I actually lived there for a year after high there. school. Nice. I did. I wasn't a foodie back then. It was many, many years ago. And also the culture, the food culture was different then, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, absolutely love Israel. What's uh, to you, what's going to Israel like? And, and in terms of the food, what are you eating? Is there anything like different from your, your hometown of Brooklyn that you're kind of getting in Israel? Well, there's so many more kosher options. Yeah. Like almost everywhere you go, everything is kosher, yeah. you know? So that's like, you go to the gas station, you can get yourself a schnitzel sandwich. Like that doesn't exist in America, you know? So just being able to have kosher so accessible, going to the mall and having like <laughs> kosher options, we don't have yeah. that here either. So that's just it's super fun to have like, you know, kosher so accessible. Um, and they just have like so many different like, you know, restaurants and yeah. an amazing range of flavors and, and global cuisine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like kosher Thai. I mean, yeah. straight up. And you have a Thai recipe in your book. I do. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, pad, let's go over that the one. The Pad Chai. Pad Chai, yeah. good, good play on words there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, it's actually one of my favorite recipes. And, um, you know, I, I, I just put like that Middle Eastern spin on it and put harissa and silan date syrup mm-hmm. and, and lime and tamarind. And it's just like, it's actually one of... One of the dishes, when, when I was in culinary school, I think, you know, I went in with, like, my Ashkenazi palate, like mm-hmm. I said, paprika, garlic powder. Not a lot of spice. Yes. <laughs> and um, that dish is really what, like, blew my mind and made me shift and realize, like, it opened up my palate and it opened up, like, just, like, the possibilities for flavor, oh. you know? And I was just, like, blown away by it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really it's uh, cool. fun, playful dish, yeah. Let's talk about sabik, but as a salad. Yeah. It's great. Let's go over that one. Yeah. So love sabik. I mean, you know, my vision for this salad is like Shabbat, we eat so much heavy afternoon meal. A lot of people, you know, uh, uh, have the third meal of Shabbat or called shalashudas, right? And you're just kind of still full, but mm-hmm. like we still sit down and we have a meal, but like what do you eat that's not, you know, mm-hmm. too heavy? So like that was in my mind's eye, like the perfect, it's a one dish meal, you know, yeah. uh, uh, and it's not heavy. Yeah. What's the components of it? Uh, so it's got um, eggplant and hard-boiled eggs, and it's got pita chips yeah. um, and, and uh, cucumbers, tomatoes, really fresh, uh, tahini, So amba. really channeling the sabik, which is a sandwich. The sandwich. Yeah. And I love that. It's, like, literally one of my favorite sandwiches. It's it's really great. Let's talk about falafel. You smash your falafels. Like, did not expect that. Right. Did not expect smashing falafels is kind of the new way to do falafels in my brain. Right. And I'm like, why didn't anyone think of this? Like more surface area, all that crunch. And the way I actually make the, you know, when I make the actual mixture, I I pulse it so that it's like really kind of 
big chunks of chickpea in there, and they get so crunchy. It's, like, mind-blowing. Uh, it's really amazing. I went to a place in, in Tel Aviv in Florentine that does, like, donut-shaped falafel. Okay. So they're trying to do the similar thing. Not as successful. I think smashing is the way to go. Totally. Okay, this is, like, Passover is upon us. I will ask you about that, but you're frying gefilte fish. Yes. It's like a fish cake. Yes. I, I can't I can't with gefilte fish. I just can't. You can't. I get it. You know, I do feel like gefilte fish is dying a little bit. Uh, a lot yeah. of people have a very hard time with it. It's, it's one of those. Not. Yeah. It's brown and mushy. But wait, what, what gefilte fish are you eating? Is it the gefilte fish from the jar? Obviously. Okay, that's the problem. That's the pro- I that's know. The problem. I set myself up on that one. I'm eating Manischewitz and it's like the stuff but in the jar. But that's not gefilte fish. Okay, you what know? is gefilte fish? Let's See, go. You, you got, well, first of all, I have a gefilte fish from scratch in the book, which is uh, a, a, a cherished family recipe. My, my, my dad used to work um, in the home of the uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, Menachem Schneerson, mm-hmm. and he used to prepare gefilte fish for them, and it's it's kind of, you know, been handed down and used to make it every Passover actually at home. And I was saying before, my mom loves heavy handed with the sugar. She was always like, it needs more sugar. It needs more sugar because that was the seasoning that we used. Wow. So she made it very sweet. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really like pure. It's just ground white fish, like a mixture of different white fish, carrots in there, some onion, some egg, and then you just with a binder and, and that's it. So much more savory than what I'm used to. I'm used to right, like a sweet, and also like it's the one in the jar is just like complete mush. There's like yeah, yeah. so you got to try the. We got to invite you over for the yeah. real thing. Got to yes. try the real thing. <laughs> but you fry yours, so that's cool. Like that's what totally kosher is all about. Is like doing things that are more creative. And honestly, if you're listening to this, you may not be Jewish, but you might just want an idea to like fry some white fish. It's pretty great. Yeah, and adding like different herbs and spices in yeah. there, and you're it's basically a fish cake, you know. And yeah. that's how you. That's what gefilte fish is. It's it's ground fish. I'm planning Passover right now. I'm doing it at my house. I haven't done that in a while. I haven't literally cooked Passover ever, so this is new to me. Now, I'm thinking noodle kugel, but you do potato kugel. So noodle kugel actually, like by some standards, wouldn't be really kosher for Passover because it's leavened, right? It has wheat in there in the noodles. Yeah, that's true. Wow, breaking rules. That's <laughs> that's actually true. I don't. I, well, use egg noodles. You can use pa- kosher for Passover noodles. That's what I think I tried. Right. To use, maybe. Um, which I, yeah, I haven't really tried them. They're different. Mom, do you use? I I like don't know what we use. I feel maybe bad now. That that's I'm, okay. I actually have a super fun recipe in the book for um uh, sweet noodle kugel latkes with bourbon raisin jam. Sounds great. So it's your like. You know, sweet noodle kugel deconstructed for the people that hate raisins and want it on the side. Um, but yeah, potato <laughs> kugel is like, it's my mom's perfect potato kugel recipe. I grew up with it every Friday, piping hot out of the oven. Like, there's no greater Jewish comfort food to me. I think I fully agree. Kugel is, is bomb. Now, what's your showstopper Passover dish? Like, what's the dish that you are known for at Passover, a, a holiday in the spring? Um, I, I mean, I actually don't make Passover that much. Like I usually, it's for us, it's like a family holiday. So I go to my mom a lot or yeah. I go to other families. So I haven't really hosted Passover, just COVID because yeah. no one had a choice. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was, a f- and actually a few of the recipes in my cookbook that are from Passover were developed <laughs> that COVID year. Cause when did I ever make Passover <laughs> otherwise? But otherwise I'm, it's really very simple. Like I grew up with super simple Passover food because we didn't use a lot of processed ingredients. Um, there were a lot of restrictions in terms of, you know, using uh, anything besides for, like, minimal produce, yeah. you know, poultry, meat, and stuff like that. So everything's, like, minimally seasoned and and very clean. I want to ask you about being Orthodox because I'm okay. Jewish and I'm more I'm more in the reform zone. Like, that, okay. I was raised reform. And I think our audience, Orthodox, conservative, reform, all stripes of Judaism. Yeah. I would like for you to answer this. 
Okay. What is something about Orthodox Judaism that maybe is misunderstood? You know what? I think that people tend to put, like, all of Orthodox Jews in a box. And really, there's, like, so many different sects within Orthodox Judaism. So, like, a friend of mine is a very big uh, TikToker that talks all about Judaism, Linda Strauss, right? Mm -hmm. She's modern Orthodox. She wears pants, doesn't cover her hair. And then you have Miriam Izagui, who's really big, who I, you know, filmed with yesterday, who's wears a wig and only wears a skirt and, you know, is, uh, is Chabad Orthodox. So, like— I, I think that everyone kind of, you know, puts us all in a box and like we're all the same. But there's very, very, very many differences within our customs and traditions um, and the way we observe our Jewishness. So, you know, I grew up Chabad Orthodox. So Chabad is a Hasidic sect that started in the town of Lubavitch in Russia. Um, mm -hmm. We're very into outreach. Have you ever seen the mitzvah tanks, you know, mm -hmm. like on the street? That's Chabad. Yeah. Um, and we're very open-minded and very much about, like, you know, being part of the modern world and bringing uh, Jewishness to everybody, uh, which is, you know, we, I, I think you can tell from what I do, like, that, that that's kind yeah. of— Yeah, it has a Chabad element, yeah, like what, exactly, you're, what you're doing. Yeah, exactly, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, you know, people, you know, are watching, like, Shtisel or Unorthodox or all these other shows where they, they don't know much and, like, they think, you know, all Jews are the same and all Jews have maybe, you know, the long curly payas. Mm -hmm. There's really so many different types, and I think, you know, there are so many great— uh, TikTokers and influencers mm -hmm. that you can follow these days that really like demystify all, all this and and talk about um, the stereotypes that are out there and, and and the different ways that we observe. So do the Orthodox communities intermingle? Like I live in Orange County. I live near a very large Orthodox community in Kiris Joel, the Satmar right, sect. Right, Satmar. Yeah. Do you interact with the Satmar sect yourself? I mean, I, I, you know, my community is Chabad, so, like, there aren't any Satmar people around. There yeah. are some in Williamsburg nearby. So I, I find that some of the communities are very insular, and they, and they kind of stick with their own. Sure. Um, so I, I personally don't, you know, don't know anyone who's Satmar, yeah. but, you know, like I was saying, that's the, that's the important differentiation here is that, like, there's every, everyone has their own customs. And also within food, like, there's this whole subculture Within, like, Judaism, like, there's Jewish foods that everybody knows about, but there's this subculture of, like, Hasidic foods that uh, within certain communities that they yeah. make every Shabbat, um, you know, very, very traditional to the Shabbat meal. Is there an example of a dish that maybe I would not know about being reformed that maybe is part of— um um, uh, part of that. Yeah. Um, there, there are so many dishes, yeah. but like— It's I, Yiddish tradition, I'm sure, some of it, and the words are Yiddish. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, like, for example, like, they served as part of the meal. They'll have, like, egg salad and chopped liver as a actual course together. Yeah. It has to be served. Um, it's a, kind of like a, a palate cleanser. Um, Never heard that before. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, following that. Yes, Like, yes. chopped liver as a palate cleanser, I'm following that. And, yeah. and egg salad together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those so, like, we didn't grow—I didn't grow up with that. But, you know, in certain communities, that's, you know, a staple. Yeah, absolutely. So, Hani, with the rise of anti-Semitism in—particularly in the past couple of years, how are you educating your followers? You know, not, not debunking, but how are you bringing Jewish culture into their lives? Uh, so, so, first of all, anti-Semitism is something that is very close to my heart. My brother was killed in a terrorist attack um, on the Brooklyn Bridge, Ari Hallerstam. And uh, actually, today's his the the yard site, the the day of his passing, um, and it, it is very important to me 
you know, just just to teach by example, like just being a good example of being, you know, an, an honest person who has integrity, who, you know, sees so much beauty in our traditions and sharing that beauty. And I think I think it just translates when it comes from an authentic place um, and you, you have so much pride in it. People just pick up that energy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I have a lot of followers that aren't even Jewish and um have so much respect for, you know, the Jewish traditions and, and, and following me and, and learning about our culture. Mm-hmm. And it's really special. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And and I think um, leading by example is is a great way to, to, to further, you know, the knowledge and, and it, without debunking, you know, these, all these myths that are out there about anti, that are tied around anti-Semitism. Definitely. Honey, is there one recipe that you really, it's going to be like your cookies, like Alison Roman cookies, like like your viral hit. Is there like a recipe that you think is going to break out? It's so hard to say. Like sometimes I'll put in like effort and be so excited for a new recipe and then like it just falls flat and then I do something for two seconds <laughs> and like everybody goes crazy. Like when I made a rias, um, you know, the, the stuffed pita pockets. I'm sure you've had those in Israel. Yeah. Uh, when I made them on my story like two years ago, the pita factories sold out of pita in New York. Wow. Yeah. Like, and I was, I was like, what is, it's a pita pocket. Like, you know, but so you, you never quite know what's going to happen. And I'm excited to see, you know, uh, it, with my first cookbook, it was my babka straws. Yes. Hands down. Yes. Gail Simmons made them and put them on her Instagram. Like they definitely went viral. And I did a cinnamon version in this book because people loved it so much. Um, so I, I don't quite know. I really don't know. I can't wait to see how it, it breaks out. Cause I know it will. You're doing so much media. It's, it's a, it's a big book. It's a big yes, book for thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, I'm really just like it's it's great like catching up with you and, and hearing about your story and I wanna I wanna get a sense of um like when you're dining out when you're not cooking what are you eating like what do you what do you like seek out in uh, in Brooklyn or wherever your travels may take you so I definitely seek out like you know different ethnic type of foods like there's a great Georgian restaurant in Queens called Marani mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to you know go just for like steak and fries I want like a cultural experience when yeah. I'm eating out which is you know kind of not so common in the kosher world but there definitely are places and that's where I'll tend to go we're gonna go in a crawl right we're gonna for eat sure where are we going we're gonna go to Williamsburg and have like the real old school Hamish food. Yeah. Like pacha. Have you had pacha? I've never had pacha. I've, I've we've written about it on taste, but I've never had pacha. I well, my mom used to make it. Yeah. Um, and like it has like I don't know how many heads of garlic, and it's just, it's not my thing. But you gotta <laughs> have it. I mean, I I want to to like check the check the scene. I want to see what he's dining in these restaurants. What about chalent? Have you had chalent? Oh yeah, I was in Budapest and I had it there. It was really good. Oh, I was just in Budapest. Were you really? Yeah, a couple months ago. Yeah. How was that trip? It was really special and meaningful. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's a sad place for me and for you. But it also made me feel so proud to be Jewish and to have such a rich culture, you know? Unbelievable. And heritage, yeah. Did you have some cholent there? I did not have cholent, no. I had paprikash. Paprikash, of course. Yes. (laughs) It's it's a cool country. I mean, it it definitely, politically, it's it's all over the map right now. And, you know, it's tough, but... The food there is remarkable. I thought it was very surprising. The wine regions in Hungary are beautiful. right. I was in yeah, Tokai. Yeah, um, I was there, but like, and they're opening a, 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 like two new kosher wineries yeah. there. But like, the kosher is limited, of course, yeah. as in any you know any space. Um, so I can only go to the kosher restaurants. Mm-hmm. But definitely, the whole the wine culture is opening up 
in terms of mm-hmm. kosher wine over there, for sure. What about, like, spirits? Is kosher, are there kosher spirits? There are. Yeah. Uh, a lot of spirits don't even need certification. Got it. Yeah. So what, do you, what are you drinking? I'm a bourbon uh, and whiskey, yeah. Okay, so it's bourbon whiskey, like yeah. Kentucky style, yeah. I love an old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a recipe in my book called the Apple Bomb because my name is Applebaum. Straight up, yeah. <laughs> With apple cider <laughs> and, and bourbon and, and sp- uh, spiced maple syrup. It's fun. What about your World Peace Challah? I feel like that's something we got to talk about. It's like award-winning challah recipe. It is uh, from the kitchen uh, website. Yep. They did like that side-by-side comparison, a bunch of different challah recipes, and my recipe won. But the problem is that my challah recipe actually makes five pounds of challah because in order to make a blessing on the dough, <laughs> you have to make a certain use a certain amount of flour. So yeah. something I regularly get in my emails, my DMs is like, can you give me a recipe for one challah? I don't need this many challahs. So I was like, okay, we're going to do, you know, a a recipe for one challah. But traditionally on Shabbat, we have two loaves of bread. In order to make the blessing, you have two loaves. So by having a pull apart, that's considered like two loaves. So you can have that one single Uh challah. In addition, some, you know, some people call it the shalom bias challah, which means peace in the home. Oh, yeah. Like peace between a, a married couple because every single section has a different topping, so it kind of makes everyone happy. I love it. So I'm like, I'm going global, and I'm calling it World Peace Challah. I love that. It's so yeah. fun the way that you, you phrase that. Yeah. Your Hawaii's sheet pan chicken is genius because Hawaii's is something that's not usually made on sheet pan. Here you're articulating in that, you know, very user-friendly way. So I love Yemenite chicken soup. Um, yeah, usually made with beef, actually. But I make my chicken mm-hmm. soup very often for Friday night with lots of a wise in it. Yeah. And, uh, and I put the potatoes and I put tomatoes. And I always say that that spice is, like, otherworldly. And I'm like, I must have been Yemenite in another life because <laughs> it, like, it transports me. I, I like, the smells, like, it just does something to yeah, you. Yeah, Hawaii you know? is incredible if you can find it. Uh, so Well, I'm actually coming out with my own set of a wise for soup and a wise for coffee that I'm selling. Yes, because yes. there's a coffee side too. Yes. yes, yes, yes. So there's actually Hawaii's ginger snap cookies in the book as well. Yes, that's right. There's a so kind of because of, you know, I had both of those and I love both of those. I, I, I Just stay tuned to my channel. I'm going to be selling those. Um, I, and they're insane. I bet they're great. Yeah. Yeah. You got me thinking about good filter fish still, by the way. I'm, I'm still like, <laughs> oh, am I going to make a filter fish and make fried fritters? I think that's so genius. Well, you know what you could do? To cut down on time, just buy a loaf of frozen filter fish, defrost it, and then pan fry them into patties. Yeah, I'm into that. My mom used to do that all the that's time. That's my one. Yeah. Honey, we asked our guests in Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to create the book, what would that be? I think I would write a book about meat. Kosher meat is something that, you know, there's so many different cuts. All the butchers use different names for the different cuts. Everybody's so confused about what, you know, what e- what each cut means. Because, like, even butchers will use the same cut with different names, different butchers. So it, it gets really confusing. And I just find that people don't understand how to cook meat um, yeah. You know, like dry roasting versus braising. Which cut? Is it a tender yeah. cut? Is it a tough cut? So, and I'm really good at cooking meat. Yeah. So um, I would love to teach people how to do it. So is there like a way that you're going to take that brisket for Passover or wherever it may be served and make it like your style? Because that is like, to me, the canonical Jewish meat dish. Brisket. Yeah. Can I just tell you an honest truth here? Yeah, please. I hate brisket. <laughs> It's a tough hang sometimes for people. No, it's a, I don't lo- I feel like braised meat all tastes like chalant. I know. You know what I mean? 
I do know what you mean. I, I've had plenty of not great brisket in my life. No, but it, even Jewish if Jewish brisket. No, even if it's a great recipe, and I have amazing recipes for brisket, like it, you know, in in my cookbook, on my blog, I just I I like a piece of rear red meat. Like I want to chew my food. You know, I don't want to just swallow it whole. <laughs> so so I'm just like I'm not a brisket girl. Yeah, yeah, I get that. I and, mean, and I feel like every kosher restaurant has a pulled beef slider and you know a pulled beef this and a pulled beef empanada, and I'm just like please. No. So you're just like how to cook like a nice piece of a beef. A good cowboy steak. Yeah, which I have in my book. Yeah. Yeah, cowboy steak for two. It's like, it's, yeah, that's what I love. I love that. I'm going to go right to that chapter. <laughs> Honey Applebaum, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thanks for having me. Sawel Kochi and Aaron Israel, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for coming in, guys. Now, what was last night's service like? Like, like you know, you're, you're operating a restaurant in Brooklyn, busy, busy, busy. What was it like? Actually, last night was Monday. Yeah. And um, it was our night off, so service was like a eight-year-old and a three-year-old <laughs> making pizza at home. Oh, Nice. Oh, oh that's, let's get into that. Okay. <laughs> but, but, the, but the previous last service was, uh, was it was busy. It yeah. Was, yeah, it was a long day. So, yeah. Well, Shalom Japan is 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 a name that anyone in New York City knows. I mean, you guys have been operating at the highest level for, for forever, it feels like, which is, I hope, a compliment. Because when you become a fabric of a neighborhood and a fabric of a city, it's a real success story. Thank you. I had 10 years uh, this summer. Wow. That's it? 10 years. We'll talk about Love Japan, your your new cookbook. Your first cookbook, right? So how did you guys meet? What's the story? How, how Where did that happen? We met in the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> oh, really? So you met it, like working in one or? No, it was a, a dinner that was for Aaron's restaurant uh, where he was working. He was like gathered like his coworkers and had a dinner there and everybody could bring a plus one. And my friend Jess, who used to work with me, was working with Aaron and she was like, so I'd be my plus one and come oh. come hang out and eat Chinese food. Which restaurant? Which one? Uh, it was Oriental, Oriental Garden. Garden. Oh, yeah. Yeah. OG, the OG. It was so good. And so I, good. it closed Sad. during, yeah. We used to, I mean, for years after, we would just always go back around that time. It was April when we met. And we would go back and we would we would eat. And the last time was, I guess, probably like 2019. And then yeah. they closed during the pandemic. Yeah. It was, and, Sad. So many. I think Chinatown, New York, lost quite a few spots. Yeah, over. and that and that was a real gem. That was it was great. Yeah. So then uh, you da- you started dating. You open a restaurant. Yeah, we got married in May of uh, 2013, and then the restaurant opened in July of 2013. We were kind of in the middle of opening the restaurant. I think at a certain point, we we're like, I think you know, we're living together. We're starting a business together. Like, what What are we doing? We may as well just, you know, add another. Add another, like, complexity to the whole mix. Yeah. So, or or at least at that point, like, you know, why not? Like, what are you waiting for? Definitely. So so when you were thinking about it, was Shalom Japan, which is just the, you know, A-plus gold star name, was that always the, the name? Um, it, you know, it wasn't really. So, you know, when we were dating, uh, we were both doing some different things. Sawa was doing a supper club. Uh, I was doing some private chefing things and just sort of 
thinking about this project that I wanted to do. And I was doing research. We were both hanging out in the Brooklyn Library. I was doing research for for something. Um, and I came across like a guidebook from 1983. It's, it was written by Oscar Israelowitz. And um, it was sort of like a walking tour of the Lower East Side. Uh, and really interestingly, like kind of time stamped, like all the sites to see. Um, and, you know, it sort of mentioned some places to eat when you're done with your tour. And one of them was a place called Shalom Japan. It was on Grand and Worcester Street. Um, wow. And I saw it. And so like Tribeca, basically, kind of, or Soho, I guess. Yeah. 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 And it was um, it was a real place, you wow. know. Uh, and I, sh- I saw it. I showed it to Sawa, and I was like, hey, Sawa, look at this. And we immediately started laughing. Like, oh, if we ever open a restaurant <laughs> called Shalom Japan. And it was just sort of like a running joke, really. We yeah. were like, <laughs> yeah, you know. We wouldn't really do that. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, and, and so you open it. Well, we did. <laughs> so the concept from day one, you ended up, you know, naming it Shalom Japan, but, like, it was obviously informed by both Jewish cuisine and Japanese cuisine, but it's not a, like, likely marriage, right? Or is it? I mean, for us, it was a very natural process because we were both chef and— we cook for each other and we were kind of like, oh, you know, I have something similar that, you know, like locks. And, you know, oh, I, if I have locks, I wouldn't put it on a bagel. I put it on sushi rice and make, yep. you know, chirashi or something. Definitely. And then we tried each other's food and like, oh, this is this is actually good, you know. And I don't know. It wasn't like weird for us yeah to, to meld it yeah I think a lot of it is about you know two people from obviously very different you know cultural backgrounds that are coming together and and sort of figuring out all right you know how are we going to do this together and sort of seeing what what grows out of that and that sort of filtered through this sort of love of food that we have you know we're both chefs we both love cooking we both love eating we you know we don't get to do it as much anymore but we, you know we love going out to restaurants and trying new things and so a lot of it really just came out of this sort of dialogue that we were having about food and about each other's upbringings and about each other's cultures um you know in a lot of ways i think it's sort of you know it's not just a new york thing but i mean in this country i mean it's not it's not uncommon to see you know two people from no. vastly different cultures you know finding each other and and building a life together and ours is happens to be focused around the table and so yeah you know how do you how do you do that is you know you find somebody and you look for common things yeah. and or or you embrace things that are different too and you're like wow mhm i never seen that before it's good what was when you were figuring out the recipes what was the most requested recipe for, to put in the book from your from your you know your longtime guests or friends of yours yeah the matzo ball ramen nice what is that let's go through that matzo ball soup uh and you know my mom makes it and i used to love eating it growing up and i started wanting to really make it in a in a restaurant yeah. setting and i was working on one and i made it for sawa once and I was like, yeah, I do this thing. You know, I get the whole chicken, and you know, it was like really chefy. I do all these like different things. You know, I grind up the legs and turn those into like crepe lock, and mm. you know, and actually put the liver in that one, and you know, like it's like a liver and 
chicken kreplock or, uh, you know, render the fat and use that to make like soup mandals, like the little crunchy things that go in and just try to use up like all the parts of the bird. And I made it for it and I'm like, you know, but like, I don't know, I'm struggling. I don't know like what noodle. I don't love Manischewitz noodles. Like they're, they're fine. They're yeah. Okay. Not like the greatest thing. Um, you know, I tried some like, gone to like Chinatown and tried some like lo mein noodles and you know things like that and she's like why don't you just do ramen yeah noodles? sun get, get sun in the picture <laughs> sun noodles and the best noodles in the world absolutely yeah so yeah he made it and it was we were all eating together and i was like this would be really good if you put ramen noodle in it <laughs> i love that story yeah i mean there's definitely using the full bird is clearly part of japanese technique so it's it's definitely like a, a great m- merging of culture Sawa, what's what's happened with Japanese food in America over the past decade? Big question, but I feel like you could answer it really well because you're in in it and your restaurant started 10 years ago. And I feel like Japanese cuisine has been at a focus in in many ways, and it's it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's 10 years ago, I guess ramen was starting to be popular, right? And I mean, we went to uh, Ipudo a couple times on a date, and you waited in line, probably back then. Ipudo's lines were like an yeah, hour or two yeah. hours. Yeah, it was, it was a, but you know, it was busy, yeah. and it was like one of the best places to get ramen. And I was so excited. I was like, "Oh my god, I can get really good ramen in New York!" You know? Yeah. And you know, it wasn't just sushi. The ramen's like you know coming up, and like now it's like you can get. Almost anything, like udon, soba, hot pot, you know, you name it, curry. It's great. You're good point there. These single topic restaurants have certainly popped up, and you're going to get Japanese bakery too and mm. burro. I mean, I shout those guys out as much as possible. <laughs> and Dumbo, I love them, those guys. Mm, yeah. Um, you have a chapter called Pancake and Friends. What a great name. What does that mean, Pancake and Friends? <laughs> you know, we we were kind of thinking – Oh, these are chapter, it was like kind of a lot of misfits, you know? Yeah. And we couldn't fit it into other chapters. So like, let's get, get them all together and, you know, call it Pancake and Friends. <laughs> and then people interpret it in a different way that, oh, it's, you eat it together with your friends. Oh, it's a double meaning. Oh, nice. That, oh, yeah. So that could be, that could mean that too. Aaron, what are some of the friends that we're seeing in there? Because I want to ask you about the pancake part. Yeah, pancake and pancake adjacent foods, you know, mm-hmm. things that are intended to, you know, get your hands messy, you know, maybe they don't require a plate, maybe you walk around eating them, like shoving it in your mouth. Um, but uh, some, like some of the adjacent ones, like the, the harumaki, the spring rolls, yeah, um, which is one of my favorite recipes in the book. Um, we also do nagaimo ikayaki, which is like a uh, Japanese mountain potato and squid pancake. Um, yeah, well, we have the okonomiyaki. We'll get to that because yeah. I want to ask you about that one. But yeah. but you you've got some yakis going on and pizza, and we do pizza in there because we you know the book is about the food that we eat at home. Totally, and we we love I think making pizza at home, and Sawa makes this amazing pizza dough, and the kids love like putting the stuff on it, and um, yeah, it's great. Okay, so Sawa, you grew up in Hiroshima, and, and so there's a Hiroshima-style konomiyaki, and then there's other oh, konomiyakis, right? Um, Kansai-style. Kansai, Sapporo has one, I'm sure. 
Now, what does that mean? I've you, I see it in print Hiroshima style on Konomiyaki. What does that mean exactly when it has that like the style of your the town that you grew up in? So Hiroshima style okonomiyaki is very uh, distinctly different from other types of okonomiyaki because they don't make the batter all together. Oh, so you get like a, a thin crepe batter type of thing, and you that's the base. And then you put in like katsuboshi powder, and then you put in like a mound of cabbage, and then mound of bean sprouts, and then you put pork on top, and then you let it cook a little bit, and then you flip that over so the pork is on the bottom, and then you cook it down a little more, and then you take a noodle, like either ramen type of noodle or udon type of noodle, soba or udon. Yeah. And you put that on, you take the whole thing and put that on top of the udon or a soba, and then you beat an egg. Yeah. And you break an egg on top of the pan and break it a little bit, and then you take the whole thing of uh, okonomiyaki and put it on top of the egg, and then you flip, flip it, it over, and then you put the sauce and mayonnaise and bonito flakes and yeah. amari. Such a such an iconic dish. It's just the most Japanese dish. Love it. It's beautiful. So good. So good. Now, growing up in Hiroshima, now this is a city that, you know, I'd like to hear about growing up there, what it's like, because it's a city that in, you know, America, we, we, you know, associate with tragedy and, um, you know, history. What was it like growing up there for yourself? What's it like in that town? Um, the city is beautiful. It's got uh, rivers going through the city and it's delta and you know, there's parts that is very city-like. Yeah. And there's a part that is very, you know, there's a ruin. You know, the atomic bomb dome is still standing. Mm-hmm. It's a museum. Yeah. And like, a, a museum. like a memorial. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, if you're growing up in, in Hiroshima, you, you get, like, a peace education. At least, like, you know, a couple hours. And, you know, when it's closer to the summer. And, you know, you learn, like, it's... A thing that you should not repeat. Some people dying. It's it's yeah. It's it's a sad thing in the past, but you know it's very peaceful. Yeah. So the the city there's obviously a big memory and and, and learning from the past, but it's also a vibrant town and a peaceful town. And is it, should I go there? I've never I've never been to that part of Japan. Oh, you should go. You should go. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Definitely when- go visit um, the memorial park. Visit the Miyajima. You know, go eat some CEO anago. Yeah. Oysters. Momiji manju. Aaron, what was your first visit there like? Oh, it was great. I was, I was, you know, I think probably like you said, you know, you don't really know what to think as an American, you know, going to Hiroshima and you're like, obviously you have sort of preconceived notions. Um, but for me, um, the first time I went, I, I woke up, Sawa was already there. It was actually... It was right after Hurricane Sandy. Mm. Um, we had just moved in together, and Salwa hadn't been to see her family in in a while. So she went, and she was there for a week, and then I went and met her. Um, and so I woke. I you know the first thing I did, I got off the plane, and I you know I met her parents for the first time, oh, which cool. is like pretty you know a little nerve wracking. Um, and then I got to her 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 parents' place, and her mom like greeted me with like a big platter of harumaki of oh, the wow. spring rolls and her dad just started like pouring soju 
And then I was like, I, I think I'm gonna like it here. And uh, and we w- we woke up the next morning, and Sawa took me to to Miyajima, which is about like a 20 minute train ride, sort of from the center of the city. And it's a little this very small sort of sacred island. You take a ferry there, uh, and it, uh, it it has a very famous. Um, Tori, like a big arch um, that sort of looks like it's floating on on the water. When the tide comes in, it looks like it's floating and it goes out and it's just sort of right there. And there's a beautiful shrine. And um, you can go to the top. Uh, the, the, the little island has like, you know, a little mountain. Mm-hmm. You go up to the top and you see the whole view of like the whole city and the whole area. Um, and, you know, the water is beautiful and blue and there's all these beautiful mountains coming out of the water. It kind of, you know, super coastal, like yeah. blue sky. And you're like, okay, this isn't really, you know, what people have in mind when they think of, you know, Hiroshima. They think of like the the tragic past. Um, but, I, you know, for me when I went and then, you know, my first time there, she took me to the Peace Memorial Park and I was, I, I was really amazed by the sort of the tone of it where it wasn't about being sort of victimized. Yeah. Uh, it was sort of being like, you know, this this terrible thing happened. So how can we, as a world, learn from it yeah. and and hopefully educate mm-hmm. people to be like, you know, it's awful and this should just not happen anywhere else. And I think that like that sort of message was really beautiful because instead of being like, oh, look at this terrible thing that happened to us, and you know, and which is which is true, it was just sort of trying to turn that negativity into like a really positive message yeah. for the world. And that that to me is like what a lot of of the city is about. It's really beautiful, and the, like she said, the food is great. Like. Yeah, I would like to make it there one day. I'm gonna try to do that. I want to segue and and hear more about the the book and cooking. And I notice uh, a real proclamation about the the sando, the 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 short Japanese short for sandwich, but very iconic. Why Sawa? Why have Japanese cooks mastered the sandwich so much so well? It's I think it has a lot to do with bread. Yes, the milk bread that they make. It's it's like a perfect like. It's not too, too hard, and it's not too soft. Yeah, yep. Milk bread's perfect. Yeah. What's your favorite sando? Do you have one? Uh, my favorite is the veggie deluxe sando. What's on that? Air pesto, and uh, tomato, really thick cut tomato, and eggplant, like you know, sautéed eggplant, and zucchini. I mean, we're talking Carizzi. This is like an Italian sandwich right here. <laughs> yes. Come on, let's get real. He's <laughs> very passionate about sandwich. <laughs> is that your favorite, Aaron? I Yeah, I love it. Um, it's all these different layers of vegetables and textures and um, that herbiness from like the shiso pesto. But I also really love like a good like chicken katsu sando, like just like Definitely. fried or it doesn't have to be chicken or pork or whatever, just nice like breaded fried cutlet. You know, um, we had to cut. We had a lot of sandos to put in the book. We had to cut a whole bunch of them because we we were like, oh, we love this sando and that. You know, and obviously it's not like a book about yeah. sandwiches, um, but yeah, and there's only so many. You know, there's only room for so many. Yeah, recipes. you had to pick your favorites. Yeah. Of course, of course. But uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah, sandwiches. Speaking of uh, frying chicken, uh, what is it about karage that is so like to me? It's the best way to fry chicken is the Japanese style fried chicken. What what makes it better it's the marinade and then there's no bone so it, it cooks quicker the marinade is key what is in your marinade in the cookbook uh it's got garlic and ginger yeah sake and soy yeah it's amazing 
combination. So you basically marinate it overnight and then you put a like a, a batter or a dredge. Dredge. Fry. Yeah. Yeah, just a dredge, just simple like flour, cornstarch. And I think one of the things that's great about the Japanese fried chicken or just fried chicken in general is that it's one of those great foods that's really good as soon as you take it out of the pan. It's like hot and crispy. It's also like really good after it kind of sits a little bit. Definitely. And it's also yeah. really excellent the next day when you pull it out of the fridge yeah. cold. So it just has all these different, you know, it's it's just good. And and so what kind of cut are we going with? Like, are we doing boneless thighs? I mean, as a home cook, I think there's something about when you go to a great Japanese restaurant, you have karage, there's something about the butchering that's different. It just feels like they there's like better surface area, the tendons and the fat kind of mixed together in a good way. I know that sounds kind of gross, but I think it's actually makes sense. Like it's like it, there's structure and texture there. Yeah, we do the thighs. Um, I mean, you know, if you do the whole leg, you get a little bit of tendons, you know, if, down from the drumstick. So yeah. we kind of stick to the thighs, which is, you know, going to be really tender, really flavorful. You know, we keep the skin on too, which yeah. kind of then sort of, you know, some of it sort of sticks more to the meat. Some of it starts peeling off and then just gets a little like, like gribbiness, like kind of stuck on the side, you know, like, so you get all these different, you know, textures. You can definitely do it with the white meat it would work. It would yeah. be delicious. Not as but, fun though. Yeah. Just going to say. Just We're not. dark meat people you have to, i mean is there any other way for frying chicken not in my opinion although actually though we we <laughs> do at the restaurant now we've kind of pivoted and we actually do one with lion's mane mushrooms love that and nice those those are pretty awesome they you know when you pull them apart and they have this they have this sort of similar like fibrousness to it and then you know they they're mushrooms they suck in yeah that same marinade like so you get same all same sake soy sauce marinade. Uh, marinade. Yeah, same marinade, and it nice. pulls it in, and you get all that same flavor. Obviously, it doesn't taste like chicken. No, it tastes like a mushroom, but that texture is like really meaty, better, uh, and it holds up really well. I love that lion's mane. Yeah, uh, lion's manes are great when you get them at the farmers market. Yeah, um, tuna tataki. I feel like the photo is beautiful in your book, and I'm like, I want to do that, but then I'm like, I don't think I can do that. I feel very hesitant to do like kind of a, a very lightly seared tuna. So what's the best uh, technique? How do I make it look like that photo in the book? Well, don't cook it too long. Okay. You know? Sure. Uh, you want your pan to be, like, really hot. Yeah, like cast iron or steel. Yeah, or you can grill too. Yeah. You know, hot, hot. And just be on top of it. Just count in your head. Was it, like, a 30 seconds? Do you remember, Aaron? Like, in total, like, on each side, you know, maybe, like, 15. 30 seconds. And then you rotate and then, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also, of course, you want to buy really good tuna for it because you want to buy something that you're going to would want to eat for sashimi, you know. So if you go to a fish market that you either like trust trust the fishmonger or, you know, a Japanese grocer where they're selling like tuna specifically for sushi, like that's great to buy. And then you can just, you know, sear it really, 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 really fast. And then so what's the crust on it then in your recipe? Uh, we don't do a crust on nope. on the tuna tataki. Just it's just a little olive oil, a little salt, a little pepper. Very simple like that. And then the sauce is is sort of sesame. I love that dish. I mean, I I, I think you're. It's a good point. Like if it's sashimi style tuna, you're gonna have a good product, right? You mm-hmm. have to look for that. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about Teresi, Aaron. You worked there, Teresi Town Specialties. We just had Rich on the show. You worked there like it was like you, Mario, and Rich, like doing like the mozzarella. I'll link to that in the show notes. What was that early day like? Because I feel like that restaurant is pretty legendary. It was great. You know, I had worked with with Rich uh, at Avoce. Um, he he sort of uh, trained me on the pasta station. We worked together for almost three years there, and um, 
when once Aunt, Andrew Carmelini was the chef, once he left, uh, we all went different ways. And Rich, you know, he he contacted me and he's like, "Hey, I'm opening up this restaurant with with my really good friend Mario." And I had met Mario mm-hmm. like just a couple of times from you know all hanging out. And um, he's like, "Yeah, hey, you want to be a part of it?" And I was like, "Sure." I got nothing else really, yeah. you know, and it sounded really exciting. I knew Rich is, you know, super talented and obviously so is, so is Mario. I mean, it was, you know, it was definitely, you know, I think any restaurant opening is, is really, really challenging and, you know, working yeah. with those guys, I mean, they're, they're really driven, they're really focused, they're really mm-hmm. perfectionists, I would say. So I learned a lot, you know, learned a lot about flavors and, you know, the way they think about food and, um, it was a great experience. It was not easy, yeah. you know. And then I and I left. You know, I was there for like the first year, and like right. And we'd gotten all that really great press, and we went from just doing like sandwiches, you know, and then doing lunch, and dinner, and and I, it was really blowing up when when I left. But it was it was really time for me to kind of go and and think about Shalom Japan. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, like soon after that, you know, you've been doing it for ten years, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how is it running a restaurant in Brooklyn right now? I mean, it's we talk a lot to a lot of chefs. Um, Post-pandemic, it seems, like, challenging, right? Exciting. You have your, like, livelihood back. It's nice. Yeah. Um, A lot of customers are coming back. And, yeah, it's, like, it's, like, nothing happened again kind of feel, you know? But, yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, it was very, very difficult, of course. We had to close for three months, you know, open up, but back up. But it was really, really slow. And we try to do the takeout thing and, you know, it was just not happening. Yeah. I mean, your restaurant, when you visit, and I've visited many times over the years, it's it's not uh, a takeout place. It's it's like a restaurant. You go in and have an absolute joyful experience and there's just great energy there. So, yeah, it doesn't translate well to the takeout only model. But you're back and and, and business is good, right? This has been great. Yeah, I think, you know, this this holiday season, this past one, um, was was really pivotal because, you know, the, the previous two were so challenging with, you know, in in 2020 with, you know, with people not being vaccinated and then 2021 with like Omicron and, and really like this last year where things didn't hit the fan, you know, culturally yeah. and, you know, with, with the virus, like people think you could really see a, a shift in people's um, – like energy and like the way they were thinking like, oh, like I'm not going to have to cancel my Christmas plans this year. Like, oh, like this, this is going to be like kind of normal. Like we're going to, you're not going to have to sit outside in like 12 degree weather. And this year it was, it was, it was really great. I mean, we, we, we had our best holiday season really ever. So amazing. Can't complain. I can't let it go. Gabrielle Gershenson, your, your, uh, your collaborator, I have to say, what was like working with her? Um, we spent a lot of, time talking um, about the recipes and I mean we became really good friends yeah. and um, because we, we I mean our, our first it was like five years we, we met five years ago yeah and we started like talking about the book and you know we we met like every week she has been coming um, from the city to Brooklyn and sat with us mm-hmm. and, you know, she was typing and we were talking and, you know, we did that for like a long time. Yeah. And she's got like, I don't know, she's very detail oriented and she wants to like she's terrific. get everything out of, out of you. She's terrific. Yeah. I've known her for a long time. I've never collaborated with her on a book, but she's terrific. Absolutely terrific. So 
that must have been fun to collaborate. Yeah, and also watch her, you know. <laughs> since pandemic, we had to switch to the Zoom meeting. Yeah, yeah. And, like, watch her type, um, <laughs> you know, like, really fast and, like, change the sentence. Yeah. To say it in a different way, like, you know, 10 different ways. It's just amazing. Great. Well, shouts to her. Now, we ask usually ask um, guests about a book project, but because you've just released this book, I want to reframe this question. So... If you could open a dream restaurant concept without the burden of time, meaning you have 10 years to make it happen, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to execute this restaurant concept. We'll start with you, Aaron. I'm extending this intro to give you time to think because I'm, I'm just dropping this on you because I just feel like I want to hear. What's the dream restaurant project? Well, for me, one of the, one of my favorite restaurants that that I've been to um, is Primo up in up in Maine. Sal and I have been there a couple of times, and um, you know it's so beautiful. I mean, if have you ever been? No, I haven't. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know the chef uh, Melissa Kelly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, know the name. Yeah. So I mean, she's got this beautiful Victorian house, um, and her kitchen is like you know sort of flooded with light, you know, and, and old wood floors. It's, it's a beautiful restaurant and the grounds of her restaurant, you know, she's, she's growing her own produce. She's raising her own chickens and pigs and, you know, I mean, it's, and it's really, really beautiful. I mean, what, what she does there. Um, and we've gone a couple of times, we've seen her operation kind of grow too. like, you know, the first time we went, I don't think she was, the garden wasn't as big, you know, like it's gotten bigger and bigger and, and, um, I think what she's done there is is really amazing, you know. But every time that I I think about like, oh, that would be great to open a place like that. Sal always reminds me. She's like, it's hard enough like running a restaurant. You want to also like grow <laughs> some agriculture like, and farming like, too. Like, yeah, but. yeah, exactly. You want to, you know. So, I mean, I don't know how I don't know how practical. It's certainly not in Brooklyn. You know? No, you got to find a new spot. But you know, yeah. Um, but you know, and I'm sure if you got her on, she would talk to you about all of the immense challenges and why, mm. you know, of of running her place. But um, it's a it's a really great spot. Um. To like a version of that, Savo, what about you? Do you have a similar thought or is there a different th- idea? I mean, I would do the, the similar, you know, thing, but by the beach. Yeah. I love it. I love catching up with you. Sawa Kochi and Aaron Israel, thank you for joining today's podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 